Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Reverend Dave Kiefer. This morning, while Dr. Walker's on vacation, we're going to be taking a break from the book of Ephesians, and we're going to be looking instead at the introduction of Jesus' most famous Sermon on the Mount. Now, Jesus grabs the attention, like every great speaker does in this introduction. Uh, he artfully lays out the main idea of the entire sermon. And even those who are unfamiliar with the Bible may recognize this text, for it's popularly known as the Beatitudes. Jesus constructed the Beatitudes to capture the essence of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And they are beautifully poetic, but more than that, they're also logically ordered. And they form what theologians from old, like John uh, Chrysostom, have called the golden chain, each link essential, an essential element of the Christian life. So turn, if you will, to Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, and follow along as I read. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As a child, I remember trying to learn how to do headstands. And when I grew frustrated, I'd rest in a tripod position with my fanny sticking up in the air. For an adventuresome boy like myself, viewing the world from that angle was entertaining, with pets walking on the ceiling and lamps hanging from tables and chandeliers sticking up from the floor. It all looked very strange and funny and even ridiculous. Now, on first glance, the Beatitudes seem just as ridiculous. Everything's upside down. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the hungry, the meek, the persecuted. It all seems very strange, even ridiculous. But the question we often fail to ask is, whose fanny's sticking up in the air? And here's a hint. It's not Jesus. Jesus is setting things back in their proper place by turning things right side up. Now, the Beatitudes are about blessing. What gave it away? Could it be the repetition? Blessed, 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 blessed. Eight times 
Jesus proclaims blessing. So, if you want to be blessed, pay attention. Put away all distractions and listen carefully, for Jesus wants to bless you. And the Beatitudes are a treasure map, a scavenger hunt of blessings, if you will. It's a treasure map of the Christian life, and it details the blessings found along the journey as we walk with Christ. Now, as you read any map, it's first helpful to look at the the key or or the legend that helps you read the map correctly, and uh, and that's what we're going to do here first, and then we're going to count the blessings as we go on this journey through the Beatitudes. Every map has a key or legend that helps you interpret the signs. And those who have traveled the lands before tend to, tend to write little notes in the legend to, to help guide you so you know how to interpret the map. And the ones that have helped me, that have gone before me as I've tried to interpret this map are, are Martin Luther and John Calvin and, and John Stott and, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Those are a few of the commentaries whose, whose legends have helped me to read this map. And nearly all of them, all the commentators worth their salt, agree that the people described by the Beatitudes are followers of Christ. They're not humanity in general, and contrary to popular belief, the Beatitudes do not not describe eight different groups of people, some of whom mourn and others of whom are merciful and some who are called to be persecuted, but they describe one group, the church, those who are in Christ. Now secondly, the second note in the key is, is the qualities commended are primarily spiritual. It's not the poor that are blessed, but the poor in spirit. It's not those who hunger and thirst for food, but those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, this doesn't suggest that Jesus is apathetic to the par, poor. Far, far from it, Jesus relieved the troubles of the poor. But, but the point is, is that the blessing isn't primarily economic. Now, the third note in the key is, is I want to make some clarifying comments about the blessings promised. Two, two in fact. First, the, blessing promise, the blessings promised are not simply subjective in nature. They, they are primarily spiritual, but they're not simply subjective. The, the Greek word makarios can mean happy. And some translations render it, happy are the poor in spirit, and happy are the meek, and happy are the persecuted. And and those who live out the Beatitudes, truth be told, discover mental health and happiness and human flourishing in as much as they embrace them and exhibit them. However, there is a danger in translating Macarius as happy. For in the English, happy usually describes purely a subjective state. But Jesus here is describing an objective blessing. And John Stott clarifies that that Jesus is not declaring what the disciples may feel like, that is happy, but what God thinks of them and on what account they are blessed. So that's the one clarifying note about the blessings promised. They're more than subjective. A second clarifying note about these blessings is, is the time in which they come and we experience them. And in other words, are the Beatitudes a map of, of the future world or are they a map of the present reality? And the answer is, is that, well, they're a map of both because the blessings promised, 
and the qualities commend it translate, transcend, excuse me, transcend time. Notice the first and eighth beatitude are present tense, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The other six are future tense. They shall be comforted and they shall inherit. In other words, this map shows how, how the present meets the future, or more accurately, how the future is invading the present. For the kingdom of heaven has already broken in because the king has already come and his people remain. Presently, we enjoy the first fruits of the kingdom, but the full harvest is still to come. And inasmuch as we embrace these beatitudes, we experience more and more of the kingdom of God. So that's the key to the treasure map. The Beatitudes are a map of the Christian life and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The people described are one group, not some who are meek and others who are persecuted. The qualities commended are primarily spiritual, but that doesn't mean that the blessings are simply personal and subjective. They are objective realities that, when embraced, transform the world one person at a time. And those who follow Jesus and walk with him taste the blessings presently, even though they won't feast fully until glory. So second, let's look at this journey. Having understood the map's key, let's go on a scavenger hunt and count the blessings along our journey with Christ. Now, as you know, a journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. The first beatitude explains how a person begins a journey with Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the type of poverty talked here, again, it's it's spiritual poverty, not, not poor in money. And you'd expect Jesus to say, blessed are the spiritually rich, because that's what all religious leaders say. Build up your spiritual capital through religious observance, through doing good works, through morality. But Jesus says the opposite. He says it's not the spiritually rich that obtain the kingdom of heaven, but the spiritually poor. In other words, those who who come to the Lord, recognizing that, that they have nothing to commend themselves to heaven, nothing to barter with. They say, I, I recognize that I'm not as moral as I should be. I have not lived up to my own standards, let alone God's. I did not love God nor glorify Him as He deserves, and He owes me nothing. It's someone who looks at their spiritual bank account and says, I'm bankrupt. Now, no other religion says stuff like this. Every religion except Christianity blesses the spiritually wealthy, never the spiritually bankrupt. This is a radical teaching. How is it that the poor in spirit are blessed with the kingdom of heaven? Well, the chief characteristic of poverty is powerlessness. And since the poor are powerless, they must look outside of themselves for deliverance. And in the same way, the spiritually impoverished person suffers the affliction of sin, but is unable to save himself. So he must look to God for salvation while recognizing he has no claim upon God. The prayer of the spiritually poor person is this. God Be merciful to me, a sinner. So the first step a person must take to start their journey with Jesus is to acknowledge their sin. The second step is to repent of it. And this leads naturally to the next beatitude. 
Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. As we follow Jesus' logical pro- progression, we discover who is mourning. It's those who are, who are poor in spirit. This is not sorrow of bereavement. This is sorrow of repentance. They are mourning their spiritual poverty, the, the loss of self-respect, the loss of their innocence, the, the loss to all claims of self-righteousness. See, when, when you realize your miserable condition as a sinner, you weep because like material bankruptcy, it's worse than a bad dream. It, it's a devastating reality. And you can't simply sleep it off. These are tears of contrition that come from taking responsibility for one's sin before a holy God. And when you do that, the blinders come off. Once you see your own sinful rebellion, you have the eyes to see the broken world as it really is. See, these are Christian tears shed by those who see themselves and the world as, as broken because the relationship with God is broken. Now, the good news is that Jesus has come to comfort those who shed tears of repentance. He has fulfilled the words of Isaiah the prophet when he said of himself while teaching in Nazareth, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and to bind up the brokenhearted. See, repentant people are comforted not because they mourn, but because Jesus sees their mourning and has compassion on them. In other words, those who mourn are not active agents securing their own comfort. They are passive recipients open to receiving it. They are comforted. In other words, Jesus relieves their spiritual poverty by by paying off their debt, by accounting for their sin fully, once and for all. I think that famous hymn, Rock of Ages, captures the source of this comfort. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. uh, Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. The journey with Christ continues with the next blessing. Verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. To follow Jesus' flow of thought, it's important to note that the Beatitudes on meekness meekness, comes between the Beatitude about grieving sin and the Beatitude about hungering for righteousness. Thus, Jesus frames the true definition of meekness. Real meekness is always driven by humility over sin and a hunger for righteousness. And if it's driven by other factors, it may be called meekness, but it seeks to be meekness. And so while the meek are gentle, we must clarify by asking, well, what sort of gentleness? See, this is a a humble gentleness, not, not just an effeminate gentleness. False meekness is just passive and appeasing of others. But true meekness is, is active. It's, it's hungry for righteousness. The point is that truly meek people are simply not concerned about what others think and appeasing them. They don't need to prove themselves. They, they know the sin they're capable of, but they also know how much Jesus has forgiven them and restored them by giving them His righteousness. And, and that changes 
their heart. It changes their character. They're humbled by their sin, but they don't stop there. They're now hungry for this righteousness of which they've tasted. And when that change happens in a person's heart, not only are they personally redeemed, but they become, you know, spreaders of redemption. In other words, by knowing the comfort of Jesus and by by walking in relationship with Jesus, they become like him. They become a redemptive leader, which is why the blessing promised to the meek is they shall inherit the earth. Those who humble themselves and take up their cross and love sacrificially shall be exalted. Now, it seems commentators believe that Jesus was thinking about Psalm 37 when he is talking about this beatitude where we read, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and and wither like the green herb. But those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the land. The meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Jim Collins, in his very famous book, Good to Great, discovered the impact of meekness when studying how companies became great. And because of all the false definitions of meekness, he he couldn't bring himself to use the word meek, so he called these type of people level five leaders. And he writes, we were surprised, shocked really to discover the type of leadership required for turning a good company into a great one. Compared to high-profile leaders with big personalities, those who make headlines and become celebrities, the good to great leaders seem to have come from Mars. They're self-effacing, quiet, reserved, even shy. These leaders are a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. The summary, the translation, the meek shall inherit the earth. In fact, Isaiah says that they will be the only ones left standing to inherit the new heavens and the new earth. But even presently, when the meek, wherever the meek abide, they yield inescapable influence as redemptive servant leaders who follow the ways of Jesus. The journey of walking with Christ continues. There are some other treasures to discover. In verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, I believe the simplest definition for righteousness is rightness. Someone who is right with God, right with their neighbor, right with creation. And Jesus is building a kingdom where he's setting all things right. And as you begin to taste how Jesus makes all things right, it becomes like a delicious appetizer. You hunger for more of it. You might even say you become an addict of Jesus' righteousness. Only this addiction leads to life, not death. All other qualities ultimately, all other appetites, excuse me, ultimately disappoint because they they cannot ultimately satisfy. Sex, success, reputation, they offer some good, but not what our soul ultimately hungers for. Philip Yancey described the frustration called by worldly, by worldly addictions, writing this. We fawn over football greats, movie actors, music performers, best-selling authors. Yet I must tell you that in my limited experience as a journalist, I have found that our, quote, idols are a miserable group of people, the, miserable, the most miserable I've ever met. 
Most have troubled or broken marriages. Nearly all are incurably dependent on psychotherapy. In heavy heavy irony, these larger-than-life heroes are tormented by self-doubt. I've also spent time with people I call servants, the meek ones, doctors and nurses who work among the ultimate outcasts, leprosy patients in rural India, relief workers in Somalia, Sudan, Ethiopia, Bangladesh. The PhDs I met are now scattered throughout the jungles of South America, translating the Bible into obscure languages. I was prepared to honor and admire these servants, but I was not prepared to envy them. And yet, as I now reflect on the two groups side by side, stars and servants, the servants clearly emerge as the favored ones, the graced ones. Without a question, I would rather spend time among the servants than among the stars. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Only Jesus can set things right. In every way, that is righteousness. And those who hunger and thirst for his righteousness find the only addiction that satisfies because it produces life, not death. The blessings of walking with Christ continue with the next beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Having confessed your spiritual poverty and and mourned it and received the comfort of God means that you are a recipient of mercy. And when Jesus' mercy infects you, it starts to contaminate those around you. Once those around you are infected by this mercy, you're never safe from it. When you least expect it, it comes back your way, reinfecting you with more severe symptoms. Trust, vulnerability, restored joy, increased energy... It is the best contagion that knows no bounds. Richard Wormbrandt, a Romanian pastor, was was imprisoned for eight years after the Nazis and then the communists took over Romania. He spoke before the U.S. Senate about his tortures in prison uh, because he was a Christian. And he writes about the contagious power of mercy. This is what he says. When one Christian was sentenced to death, He was was allowed to see his wife before being executed. His last words to his wife were, Honey, you must know that I die loving those who kill me. They don't know what they do. And my last request of you is to love them too. Don't have bitterness in your heart because they killed your beloved one. We will meet in heaven. Those words so impressed the officer of the secret of police who attended the discussion between the, this husband and wife that he later told Richard Wormbrandt the story in prison where he had been sent for becoming a Christian. Jesus' mercy is the only contagion for which there is no cure. Verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. John Stott said it this way, we must remember that the simple future tense, they shall, confirms not simply the futuridity of the promise, but its certainty. 
Blessed are the merciful. They shall receive mercy. Let's continue our journey with the next beatitude. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now what does it mean to be pure in heart? Over the course of time, we've purchased two types of water filters in our home. One for our drinking water so that it tastes better and not so stale. And the other for our marine friends. And without it, the scum invades the tank. Over time, things become so gross, just ask my daughter, that algae grows on the sides. You can't even see our little fishy friends. So who are the pure in heart? It's those who have a gospel filter for their heart. Those who filter their fears, their desires, their thoughts, through the cleansing power of the gospel. In other words, they preach the gospel to themselves daily. They acknowledge their desperate need, their brokenness, their sin. At the same time, they recognize the faithfulness of God to clean, to restore, to forgive. They see God because they remember what God has done for them and what He continues to do. And they bank on His promises. And, and they see God come through again and again and again. But those who turn off the gospel filter, grow cloudy of heart. Grime and muck begin to grow around their hearts, clouding their perspective. And as it is with the drinking filter in our home, life begins to taste stale again. And as with the other charcoal filter for marine animals, life grows cloudy, confusing, unsure. They, they can't see God. They can't even see the world accurately because they can't acknowledge His presence or remember His promises. The journey of walking with Jesus changes everything. The good news of Jesus, what he's done, his words, his truth, they're like a filter purifying your heart. And like purified water, life begins to taste better. Every good thing is enjoyed now with your perfect lover, God himself. And and every hard thing is endured with your perfect lover, God himself, so you're never alone. Walking with Jesus changes your heart. It enables you to see God and thus to see his world in more clear ways as you see him working in it. The journey continues with the next beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers are those who enter a situation where there is no peace and they bring it or they make it. In other words, they're not peace fakers who ignore problems. They're not peace breakers who who cause problems, but but peacemakers who redeem problems because they know the ultimate peacemaker. The one who came to bring peace in every way. The one who endured the battlefield of this sin-stained world and won a total victory at the cross where he defeated sin and three days later at the grave where he defeated death. And on rising again, what did he proclaim? Peace be with you. And when you know the ultimate peacemaker, who he is and how he brings his peace, it turns you into a peacemaker. And these peacemakers become so influential, so effective at bringing hope in dark places, at bringing reconciliation where people had had no real expectation of reconciliation, that, that these people are blessed with a new reputation. What is that reputation? They shall be called sons of God. When people look at them, they're like, wow, you reflect the glory of God. 
Now, as we, move, as we move on to the last beatitude, it's important to note that those who follow Jesus, the great peacemaker, can only make peace with those who are willing to agree to the terms of peace. Unfortunately, not everyone is. Jesus not only gives peace, <clears throat> I'm sorry, Jesus not only gives the last beatitude to us uh, to encourage us and to set proper expectations, um, but he gives it to us so that we know what we can we know what to do. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. The blessings of God transform your loyalties. Your primary loyalty becomes Jesus and his kingdom. And as a result, you make yourself an enemy to the world system, to its values and beliefs. For you're a threat to worldly desires, worldly values, and worldly beliefs. And those who applauded you before you identified with Christ will now persecute you because you identify with Christ and your identifying with him threatens their way of life. Make no mistake, this persecution will happen at school It will happen on the practice field. It will happen at work around the water cooler. And it will happen around the table during holiday family meals. And your temptation, as mine will be, is to grumble and complain, to mourn and to weep. But notice Jesus says you should rejoice. Look at verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As one commentator noted, Jesus doesn't say, retaliate like an unbeliever, nor sulk like a child, nor lick our wounds in self-pity like a dog, nor just grin and bear it like a stoic. Still less are we called to pretend that we enjoy it like a masochist. Rather, you are to rejoice for two reasons. First, your reward is great in heaven. Your reward is not only awesome, it's secure, so you really have nothing to lose. And knowing this enables you not merely to survive, but to thrive despite persecution, because you have a joy that, that transcends all circumstances, no matter how difficult or dire. And second, Jesus says, rejoice, for so they persecuted the prophets before you. On account of your loyalty, Jesus lumps you in with the hall of fame, the noblest of heroes, Now, we we need to remember it was the false prophets who during their day were well-liked. Fearing man and not God, they, they sold out to be accepted by the popular crowd. But it was the true prophets that are the real heroes that are celebrated in eternity. Those who suffered for persecution. And we can rejoice in the opportunity to confirm our love and loyalty to Jesus just as they did. So there you have it. Jesus' map of the kingdom, accounting of the blessings for all those who follow him, a map of Christian discipleship. It's counterintuitive, I know, but it's only because sin has turned us upside down and Jesus is setting things right. And those who change their thinking, who embrace the qualities commended, will increasingly experience the blessings promised. And the blessings promised in the kingdom are many, 
comfort, a great inheritance, growing satisfaction, a contagious mercy, a clarifying intimacy with God, redemptive influence, a reputation as sons of God, and persecution. The blessings are many, but the recipients of the blessing are one. One holy people set apart by God to be His representatives. So as we follow the map laid out by the Beatitudes, we'll find Jesus because Jesus is always where His people abide. Do you know His blessing? If not, you can. It starts with one small step, and that is acknowledging your spiritual poverty and turning to Jesus for mercy and grace. Come to Him. Receive that first blessing. And then receive all of them. Let us pray. Father, thank You for Jesus. Thank You for this treasure map. Thank You for the many, many blessings that You give us in Christ. Father, we confess that we're so used to an upside-down world and standing on our head that when we read it, it just looks so strange and ridiculous to us. But what You're actually doing here is You're right-siding up the world. And You're doing that in our hearts. And Father, I pray that You would do Your mighty work in each person's life here this morning. And I pray particularly for those who are hearing this for the first time. Who maybe for the first time, even though they've heard it before, it's making sense, this blessing of Yours. Lord, by the power of Your Holy Spirit, be the hound of heaven. Draw them to Yourself. Grant them this repentance unto life. Draw them into Your kingdom so they may know these many blessings. And for us that know them, forgive us for being so short-sighted where we forget about them, where the noise of the world and what they say is blessed, it, blessed drowns out what we know to be true. Help us to repent and cling hold of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.